0: Chapter 9, Facet 5, Leading the Organisation, Foster Seamless Collaboration. People often say, never look back. I don't agree. I think it's incredible to look back and see how much you've developed as a person, as a leader. Recognise the friendships you've cultivated, the ones you've let go of, and the lessons learnt. One of my retrospectives is how much I thought I knew about business before I started my own. I didn't realise what a narrow frame of reference I viewed work through. Even though I'd previously worked in the consulting group Pricewaterhouse Irwick, which was predominantly an accounting practice, I knew very little about the numbers. No, I was the people person, the, the engagement evangelist, the HR hero, the culture champion. That was great until about three months into my own business in September 1987. My $20,000 overdraft I'd secured with the family home hit 19000 and the bank manager rang me. We had our daughter Ruby, aged three years old, and Deborah was pregnant with our son Abe. I had to make this work. I had too much to lose. He politely and respectfully informed me of the current overdrawn balance and said very firmly, we'll take your house, you know. You do realise that. Well, I guess I knew it on one level, but I really didn't think they would be that nasty. And of course, what it would mean for me was no home for our growing family. Perhaps that's a negative motivation, but it worked. Now, I realise most people in the corporate world don't have their family homes on the line, but you do have your jobs and your financial security. It was a huge wake-up call for me. After three months of playing entrepreneur, I quickly secured some work, got the overdraft down and learnt one of the most important facets of business. It's one that I truly believe every leader needs to master. cash flow. Here was the problem. I wasn't thinking like a business leader. I was thinking like a technician. In this case, a specialist in leadership development. This was my passion and still is. But let me assure you that one of the main reasons companies, from small businesses to major corporates, can get into trouble is because the leaders don't bother trying to make business people out of everyone, from the receptionist to experienced directors. This is one of the missions of Leaders for Life. A whole new set of skills. Michael Gerber's brilliant small business book, The E-Myth, says people who set up their own business, ask technicians suffering from entrepreneurial seizures. Well, the same could be said for many managers. They are technicians, IT, HR, supply chain, finance, customer development, legal or marketing, suffering from leadership seizures. Because they are great engineers, they in the organisation think they will make great leaders of other engineers. The truth is that it requires a whole different set of skills or if not skills, a whole new way of looking at business. But it's not just that technicians are placed in leadership roles without any leadership skills. No, it's bigger than that. It's because they are often unaware that they see the world primarily through their functional lenses. Abraham Maslow summed this up beautifully, and you've probably heard it before. I suppose it's tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail we constantly forget to step back and see how the context we are in impacts both our behavior and our results. I remember when starting my own business, everything was a people problem because that was the lens through which I viewed the world. It was my training, my experience, and my identity. That was my hammer. Cash flow, well, I didn't really know about it and I didn't really care. That was for the accountants, the bean counters. But cash flow is a law of business. And as any lawyer will tell you, ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. I'd broken the law. And if you're still wondering what the law of cash flow is, it's very simple. At one time in the life of the business, revenue collected must exceed costs incurred. The number of businesses that go bust because they break this rule, the number of share floats that go belly up, and the number of people who get truly burnt is incredible. What's the solution? Again, it's amazingly simple and elegant. Get everyone in the business stepping into other people's shoes, seeing the world through multiple functional lenses. Increase their perspective-taking capability. Increase their ability to see context. If you can learn a simple trick, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Atticus Finch In to kill a mockingbird. Although this chapter of the book is possibly the most business focused, it doesn't mean we've left the heart centered leadership behind, not at all. When you put your heart and soul into understanding someone else's point of view, someone else's perspective, it immediately says you care. People pick up on your intention and your willingness to see where they're coming from. Nothing builds trust and mutual respect more than genuinely being interested and asking about someone's worldview. Watch what your willingness to climb into their skin and walk around in it does for your relationships. Whole systems thinking. One of the fastest ways I know of doing this is to get people to become whole systems thinkers. We continually emphasize this idea in all our leadership development programs. I first came across this through the work of Marvin Wiseboard in Productive Workplaces Organizing and Managing for Dignity, Meaning and Community. It requires leaders to look at every major, sometimes minor, business decision through other filters or lenses rather than just their own. Nothing builds commitment and collaboration across organisational boundaries like a leader who has respectfully assessed a problem or opportunity in terms of its impact or possible benefit to the whole system because it forces the leader to take other worlds into account. It's a bit like taking photos and putting different filters on your camera. It's the same picture, but every one of the filters gives you a different perspective. For example, with fly fishing, you can certainly work the stream without sunglasses, but put on a pair of polarised lenses and it's almost a miracle. You can see beneath the surface of the water so much easier. You can see the fish. For me, catching them is another issue. You get to see the real business issue. What's beneath the surface? Or what about x-rays? They still blow me away. Fancy looking at a broken leg with just your eyes, knowing you're in pain, but then the x-ray gets you beneath the surface and tells you exactly where the break is. Well, that's the impact of trying on different lenses. So what is whole systems thinking? It's knowing that everything is attached to everything else. Touch the system anywhere and you impact it everywhere. Fixing something somewhere can often create a problem somewhere else in the system. Let's take a real business example in the late 1980s. For those of you who can't remember, we had incredibly high interest rates in Australia and a mini-recession in 1987, the year I started my business. Great timing. I had a client cancel an annual conference due to financial constraints. they couldn't afford it. But the conference was part of the fabric of the place. It was in their DNA. And it was an annual ritual where results were reviewed, people's efforts were recognised and people partied. With this client, they really partied. If you just look at it through a financial lens and not a whole systems lens, This was a tough but responsible decision. But here's what happened. The decision impacted morale, which was fading anyway. In turn, people dropped their standards and their attention to detail. This, in turn, affected customer satisfaction. Customers not only felt it, but they saw it in mistakes in documentation. This impacted reputation and the brand. Word of mouth is still a powerhouse in the marketplace. This meant fewer customers, and of course fewer customers meant less revenue and profit. The very problem they were trying to address in the first place was amplified even more by the decision to cut the conference. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Oscar Wilde. I see this time and time again when unenlightened large corporates or private equity firms take over smaller entrepreneurial businesses built on soul. They invariably look at the business through a cost-cutting lens rarely considering that the real value of the business is in its DNA and the relationships forged over many years of sweat equity. Was it the wrong decision? Maybe, maybe not. The point is, had the decision been approached from a whole system's perspective, would it have been made? Could there have been another alternative? Could the potential fallout have been thought through? And could strategies have been put in place to counteract the fallout or potential implications? A whole system decision would have addressed all of these issues and more. So what are the lenses through which we should view both problems and possibilities? There are four main lenses I'd suggest you use in your organisation and, more important, encourage everyone else to look through. They're both separate and interconnected. The first three come from Wiseboard and the fourth from Peter Block. 1. Economic 2. Technical 3. Social Four, political. Let's review them in enough detail to give you a feel for each one. Again, irrespective of where the issue shows up, you should apply these four filters. You'll make much better business decisions, gain much more support, foster greater collaboration across what can sometimes be boundaries, increase your business wisdom, and considerably increase your reputation as a business and not just a functional leader. Economic. Every issue has economic implications on revenue. Cost, margins, profitability, return on investment, cash flow, long-term equity, and the value of the business. Put your accounting and finance glasses on and unleash the bean counter within. Yes, really. In fact, when mentoring new leadership development consultants or anyone in people and culture, one of my first pieces of advice is to learn to speak and read the two key languages of business. One, the profit and loss statement. Two, the balance sheet. Unless it's a private company, and even then, we have what is known as open book management, imagine the difference it would make to the decision-making of every member of the organisation if they thought about the short-term and long-term economic implications of their decisions. If you're a leader, start finance for non-finance manager workshops in your organisation. Technical. It's important to point out this is not just technology, although it involves technology. It's simultaneously thinking through your issue, challenge, idea or decision, and its impact on such issues as standards, processes, innovation, quality, efficiencies, documentation, intellectual property, information technology, plant and equipment. Social. This lens is obviously about the people and has two aspects to it, social internal Which is the internal people side of the organization and social external, the people outside the immediate organization or team. For social internal, we have such factors as morale, engagement, culture, excitement, talent strength, bench strength, succession. Social external includes such factors and people as brand, reputation, social purpose, service levels, customers, consumers. Governance. Suppliers. Political. Many see political as a subset of social. Yet over the years I've begun to realise that organisations are so political that it's important enough to have this as a separate lens. I want to make a distinction here as Peter Block does in The Empowered Manager, a brilliant read about positive versus negative politics. Block tells us that negative politics shows up in such ways as saying yes when you mean no. Withholding information. Speaking directly to higher authorities and not informing your boss. Name dropping as manipulation. Benefits without concessions. Tough or tender to face. According to Block, positive politics is the advocacy of your function and the gaining of support for your personal and organisational goals. It involves four key stands. One, having your own vision of greatness. Two, being real and authentic. Three, being a living, breathing role model of the values you espouse. And four, managing all your stakeholders differently based on trust and agreement. It requires leaders making decisions or considering impacts and consequences to ask such questions as, who's vulnerable? Who could get hurt? Whose power may be impacted? Who do we need to get on side? Who has the itch, the pain that needs to be scratched? Where's the energy? Who has the ear of the final decision maker? Who will have the final authority? Who will make it happen and be responsible for implementation? Whom do we need to check in with or at least consult? Whom do we need to at least inform? Two of the biggest objections that come up again and again when people meet resistance to their ideas are, why wasn't I asked and why wasn't I told? By now, you've no doubt picked up my love of mnemonics to make life as simple, practical, and memorable as possible. Here's another one based on the idea that whole systems thinkers really get to the heart of the issue. They don't take yes or no for that matter for an answer. They look beyond the immediate issue and think about decisions and actions from a much larger perspective. You'll sometimes be seen as a bit annoying, sometimes frustrating to deal with, a disruptive thinker, an irritant or a pest. Good. Great. That's your job. Your role is to be a systems P-E-S-T, which stands for Political, Economic, Social, Technical. Ironically enough, the more of a pest you are, the more you'll help to foster collaboration across boundaries. Lately, I've seen many leaders at another two lenses, environmental and legal. So I guess it becomes P-E-S-T-E-L, pestel. Time for Reflection One of the things we most cling to in life is our identity. We find it too silly or uncomfortable at a party to ask, who are you, and we probably couldn't answer that question anyway. Therefore we ask, what are you, Well, not as bluntly as that. Normally it's, what do you do for a living? Then we make quantum leaps in logic about the sort of person to whom we're talking. From there, we make up all sorts of characteristics about the person we have just met, based on our past stereotyping of the traits of people in those sorts of roles or occupations. Your accountants are into money and finances, your engineers are into building or blowing up things, your HR people are into people, of course, and those in advertising are our crazy creatives. Why is this? Well, it's because although we have this huge need for change and being surprised, we also have this huge need for certainty and stability. It's not only for who others are, but for who we are. Our need to hold on to our self-concept, our personal identity, is mind-blowing, even though it may not serve us. Years ago, I was introduced to the concept of recidivism in the jail system. A social worker told me that even though prisoners may have a low self-esteem and feel unworthy, recidivists' self-concepts are in fact very strong. A recidivist is a convicted criminal who re-offends, especially repeatedly. They see themselves as an offender and recommit crimes to be put back in jail, because it's jail that literally and figuratively houses their identity. And you know what? I also see this in the corporate world, where leaders hang on to their identities. Irrespective of their seniority as leaders, they see themselves as salespeople, as engineers or as marketers. They continue to see the world through this lens and the filters that go with it. An ex-general manager of sales becomes the new managing director and states very clearly, you're either selling or serving someone who is selling. He doesn't even think about how this will land with those in the supply chain. Most in supply chain, believe it or not, see it as repugnant and a real put-down. Whole systems thinking is so much more than a way of viewing the world of business. It's a chance to totally transform your identity, which as I previously said is one of the hardest things to let go of, and one of the most liberating things when you do. Imagine what it would be like to take on a whole new identity, that of a systems thinker. The total business leader in every sense of the word. You do it so much, so that after 12 months, you're almost unrecognisable to yourself. Week 5, Small Tweak 5. Next time an important business decision needs to be made, consider the whole system and at the very least simply ask yourself or those around you five simple questions. Yes, you may unsettle a few feathers, but as a leader for life, that's part of your role as a real test. One, political. What, if any, are the political implications of this issue? Two, economic. What, if any, are the economic implications of this issue. Three, social, what, if any, are the internal people implications of this issue. Four, social, what, if any, are the external people implications of this issue. Five, technical, what, if any, are the technical implications of this issue. You've now completed the small tweaks pertaining to organizational life. You're totally present, you're showing appreciation and giving credit, you've set ground rules for your team, you're really demonstrating heartfelt caring for your customers as people just like you, and you're fostering collaboration across boundaries through whole systems thinking. Now it's time to get personal.